Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 22nd edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal reversed an applicant's award of total disability. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Acme Steel versus WCAB and Mr. Borman. Michael Borman sustained continuous trauma injury to his ears, bilateral upper extremities, neck, and head while working for Acme Steel as a steel worker. The AME in the case said that Borman's 100% hearing loss was 60% due to occupational factors and 40% the result of non-occupational factors, particularly cochlear degeneration. Borman had a prior award in 1994 of 22% disability based upon hearing loss caused by an explosion at the factory at the time. His hearing has gradually gotten worse since the 1994 injury. The workers' compensation judge, however, awarded this man total disability. The judge based the finding on a vocational testimony of a vocational expert showing there was no job in the open labor market that could accommodate Mr. Borman's disabilities. Additionally, the judge ignored the Labor Code Section 4664 apportionment statute, reasoning that there was no earnings loss due to the prior award of permanent disability for hearing loss. The WCAB summarily denied ACME's petition for reconsideration, but the Court of Appeal reversed, stating that the clear intent of the legislature in enacting SB 899 was to charge employers only with that percentage of permanent disability directly caused by the current industrial injury. Here, the WCAB ignored substantial medical evidence showing that Borman's 100% loss of hearing could not be attributed solely to the current cumulative trauma. The matter was remanded to the WCAB with directions to order the administrative law judge to make an award consistent with this opinion. The WCAB reversed an award of benefits to a firefighter based upon the Olgavy decision. Here's what happened in the case of Girton versus the city of Pleasanton. Ronald Girton incurred cumulative industrial injury to his low back while working as a firefighter. The AME, Dr. Post, used the range of motion method to rate his back under the AMA guides, which was calculated to be 21% whole person impairment. Applicant obtained a prior award of 3% permanent disability for a 2004 specific injury to the back using subjective factors under the earlier 1997 permanent disability rating schedule. However, the work comp judge rejected this rating and relied on the applicant's vocational expert instead who said that applicants' work preclusions resulted in 65% diminished future earning capacity. The work comp judge used that 65% figure, less the prior 3% award, to find applicants 62% disabled. The WCA granted the employer's petition for reconsideration and rescinded the award and remanded the case for further proceedings. One of the problems with the award was that the vocational expert excluded the applicant's actual post 
injury earnings and his calculations of diminished future earning capacity. Applicant in the case admitted he performed some work as a construction supervisor for his brothers. He first had an assignment to live at a multi-million dollar home in Carmel during a remodeling project. Gurton supervised the work of construction workers at the home. He worked for about six weeks at the rate of about 40 hours per week. Since then, he has assisted his brothers in apartment remodeling projects. Apartments are gutted and remodeled when tenants vacate the premises. Since his retirement as a firefighter, he has continued to work 20 to 40 hours per week as a job site supervisor for his brother's construction company. He works as much as he wants to work, and he is paid $45 per hour for his time. But the work comp judge said that those earnings were artificially high because the work was being done for his brother, a close relative. The vocational expert said that this work was outside what Mr. Gurton could expect to compete for in the open labor market and said it was essentially sheltered employment. The judge said that the charity of applicants' families should not be used to create a false impression of applicants' true capacity for earnings. But the WCAB disagreed and found no evidence that supports the work comp judge's conclusion that applicant was performing sheltered work or that his post-injury earnings were charity provided by his family. And in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation has posted the 2013 DWC Audit Unit Annual Report. The Audit Unit Annual Report provides information on how claims administrators audited by the DWC in 2012 performed and includes a ranking report. Labor Code Sections 129 and 129.5 provide the framework for oversight and enforcement of the Labor Code and workers' compensation regulations. The performance of any insurer, self-insurer, or third-party administrator is rated for action in specific areas of benefit provisions. Of foremost importance is the payment of all indemnity owed to the injured worker the timeliness of all initial and subsequent indemnity payments, and compliance with the regulations for provision of notices about the use of a QME or AME are also audited. This year, the DWC Audit Unit completed a total of 64 profile audit reviews. 61 of them were routinely selected, and three were target audits, which were conducted based upon their failure to pass a prior audit. Audit subjects included 15 insurance companies, 14 self-administered, self-insured employers, 30 TPAs, and 5 insurance company TPA combined claims adjusting locations. At all audits, claim files were selected for review on a random basis, except that if any complaints were received regarding possible violations, the claim file related to a complaint may have been part of the audit. 59 audit subjects, or 92%, met or exceeded the performance standard. One of the 64 audit subjects will be subject to a return target audit within two years. The audit unit found and cited nearly 4,000 
1,700 violations, totaling about $1.3 million in fines. The complete list of the performance ratings for the 64 audit subjects can be reviewed on the DWC website. The Workers' Compensation Appeals Board announced its intent to modify the text of proposed amendments to its Rules of Practice and Procedure that had been the subject of a public hearing last April. The announcement stated that written comments regarding the proposed modifications would have to be received by July 25th. Following this announcement, some members of the workers' compensation community requested the WCAB to extend the time for submitting written comments, and the WCAB agreed. The WCAB extended the time for submitting written comments by an additional 15 days to Friday, August 9th by 5 o'clock. The proposed modifications to the rules and related documents are posted on the WCAB's website. The WCAB is presently in the process of adding to its website all public comments it has received regarding these proposed rules amendments. The posting of these written comments will be periodically updated until the August 9th closure of the written comment period. The WCAB encourages all interested members of the community to participate in this important process. The DWC also posted three documents related to the proposed rulemaking on the official medical fee schedule. The first document is a revised RAND working paper providing a quality assurance review of the impact for a transition to a resource-based relative value scale fee schedule. The revised working paper includes updated impact tables, revised estimated transaction conversion factors, and an explanation of the changes that were made. The other documents include a detailed impact file intended for public use, as well as a supporting document with a description of the data elements included. The impact file is a comprehensive data table which allows members of the public to focus on specific components of these proposed changes. And in medical news, scientists have developed a new method for stopping or reversing disability and pain caused by degenerative disc disease in the spine using cell therapies. Researchers from Duke University have developed a new biomaterial capable of delivering a booster shot of reparative cells into the disc space, effectively stopping pain caused by degenerative disc disease. The nucleus pulposus is the jelly-like cushioning found between the spinal discs. The disc tissue distributes pressure and provides spine mobility, helping to soothe back pain. Previous laboratory research has proven that re-implanting nucleus pulposus cells can delay disc degeneration. But, so far, the methods are poor, ineffective, and allow cells to quickly migrate out of and away from the injection site. The primary goal of this new method was to create a material that would be liquid at the start, gel after injection in the disc space, and keep the cells in the location where they are needed. A second goal was to create a material that would provide the delivered cells with the environmental cues to promote their persistence and biosynthesis. 
The way the new biomaterials work are by keeping the cells in place and triggering a process which mimics laminin, a protein found in native nucleus pulposus tissue. With this in mind, the scientists developed a gel mix designed to reintroduce nucleus pulposus cells to the intervertebral disc area. The preliminary experimental results show promise for this new method of cell therapy. And new research shows that simple surgical follow-up care can effectively be accomplished by telephone. In a preliminary study at Stanford University School of Medicine, most patients did well and seemed satisfied with post-operative checkups by telephone. And the phone follow-up saved doctors and patients time and money without compromising patient care. These clinic visits are usually five minutes or less. They are very brief. And typically, the doctor asks questions such as, How are you? Do you feel well? Are you going to the bathroom okay? And that kind of thing. Those questions can easily be asked over the phone, and only patients with unusual symptoms need to see a doctor in person. The study included patients who had routine surgeries with very low post-op complication rates. Of the patients who said they wanted to visit the clinic after the phone checkup, most wanted to pick up a return-to-work form and thought they had to do so in person. Otherwise, most patients said they were very satisfied with the telehealth checkups and seemed grateful that they did not have to drive to the clinic. But telehealth follow-up would not be appropriate for all surgeries. Cancer patients, for example, would require follow-up doctor's visits to include discussions about continuing care and treatment plans. Though research supports the safety and efficacy of telehealth, it is only used in a few areas of healthcare so far. Some physicians balk at leaving behind the gold standard of in-person visits. Another new study says that surgery to repair fractures caused by compression of the spine may not be any more beneficial than more conservative treatments. During spinal augmentation, doctors fill compression fractures usually caused by the bone-thinning condition osteoporosis in people's vertebrae with a bone cement. Research has found that spinal augmentation relieves the pain of back fractures, but more recent studies suggest the procedure's perceived benefits may be due to a placebo effect or mind over matter. Spinal fractures, however, can lead to more problems than just chronic pain. They have, for example, been tied to a doubled risk of death. Researchers at the University of Washington in Seattle found that people who had so-called spinal augmentation had a similar likelihood of death or major complications as those who did not have the surgery. The study's lead author could not find evidence that the surgery was effective. Researchers reviewed data on more than 10,000 people who had the spinal augmentation to treat their fractured back bones and compared that with over 100,000 people who used more conservative approaches such as pain medicine and back braces. And in financial news, a new A&M Best report says that the nation's 20 state-run workers' compensation funds showed strong growth for the second straight year. 
These state funds accounted for 44% of the total net premiums written in 2012. Premiums increased 7.1% in 2011 and 13.5% in 2012, reaching $6.9 billion last year. This was the highest premium level since 2008. The increases are an outgrowth of a hardening market as the economy returns to a growth mode. The report notes that the Internal Revenue Services Exempt Organizations Division is reviewing the tax-exempt status afforded these state funds. Any eventual IRS ruling in this regard could have significant impact on effective state funds markets, business strategies, and operations. The term state funds includes the 20 U.S. competitive state compensation funds. It does not include the monopolistic funds operating in North Dakota, Ohio, Puerto Rico, Washington, or Wyoming. The new Towers-Watson Commercial Lines Insurance Pricing Survey shows commercial insurance prices increased by almost 7% during the fourth quarter of 2012. This pricing data indicated a pause in the upward industry price acceleration observed since the start of 2011. The largest price increases were in workers' compensation and employment practices liability. No line of business had an overall price increase of less than 3%. Price increases were observed across all account sizes for standard commercial lines, with larger increases observed in mid-market and large accounts than in small accounts. Specialty lines of prices continue to increase, but still lag the results observed in standard lines. And with that, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please stop by again next week for more news.